Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling. Take one. Is it going to be all right? Hello, and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography, where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. On this episode, we're getting literary. Sort of. We'll be talking to Ariella Badanis about her photography and her new book, There Is Nothing Remarkable About This Place. We'll then be hitting the traveling fair circuit to talk about Susan Mazelis and her project from the mid-70s, Carnival Strippers. We've also got the answering machine and a couple of zine reviews, so gird your loins or whatever the hell else you'd gird. It's time for another episode of All Through a Life. What's gird? I'll explain. Sounds gross. But first, uh, Vanya. Yes. First, even before I ask how you've been, do you know it is our third anniversary? What? Yeah. So we've been doing this for three years? Right? Shut up. Oh my God, how has it been three? <laughs> Fuck. Wow. Shit. I didn't get... I didn't get you anything. <laughs> Was I supposed to get you a present? I mean, you could have. Okay, well, maybe I will. The traditional third anniversary is uh, leather. So that, that that's kind of, that's out for both of us, unfortunately. Well, we could do vegan leather. We could do vegan leather, yeah. I don't know. I'm not a big leather fan. I don't know if that's surprising to anybody. Oh, damn it. So the chaps are out. Okay. Yeah. What else? Well, the modern one is crystal or glass. So that would be a lens. Well, I was thinking more like crystals, like rocks or some shit. Yeah. I mean, that that's that you could, but I mean- it's glass. But you would rather get a lens. <laughs> Wouldn't. What am I? Made of money over here? <laughs> Fine. So how the hell have you been? Well, yeah. Hello, everybody. I am back in LA. And believe it or not, I almost missed I missed it here. Just a tiny, tiny bit. <laughs> I love road tripping and exploring new places. Um but I also look forward to getting all my film developed so I can revisit those places in my mind. It's almost like having that trip for the second time. <laughs> Isn't that like the fun part about film photography? Is, is it? Is that the fun part? I kind of think okay. so. I think it's like a plus. It's, you know, revisiting images that you decided to take. And it's like comparing what you saw. Mm-hmm to the reality of what you actually captured. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's like, obviously disappointing. And then sometimes you're like, oh shit, this is much better than I expected. Just life in general, yeah. And it's, it's just true <laughs> about life, yeah. Yeah, very much. Like so many things in life, we romanticize travel and tell people about the good moments that happened on the road, of course. It's like when someone asks you, about your day, you know, you don't, you're not really supposed to tell them, you know, it's supposed to be like, hi, Vanya, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Not I'm miserable. <laughs> My life sucks. Like people don't want to know these things. Yeah. It's weird. There was a guy who used to come into the bookstore that I ran. He was, he was an old fellow and he was having mm -hmm. a lot of medical trouble and he'd come in and I was like, oh, hey, Mr. Reimhauer, how are you doing? Like, Terrible. 
never get old. <laughs> and he meant it. He wasn't joking. Yeah. I love that. He did. I like people like that, though, because I, I don't mind hearing about it. But yeah, in Starbucks, the barista that's taking my order is does just give me the black drip and, you know, that's it. Sure. They don't want to know about my life. No. <laughs> so I'm not hinting that my trip was terrible, but it had its moments, I would say. I've been going through some stuff, you know, some hard stuff lately. And while I'm not really, really ready to, like, talk about it because it's personal, obviously, I'm just like going through constant waves of emotion. And it's been really, really hard. The trip, I laughed like so hard. I almost peed my pants because things like I was with Pam and she makes everything funny. (laughs) I cried and I had many heart to hearts. So it was kind of like (laughs) this whirlwind trip of like lots of emotion, but it felt so nice to get all of all of those things out. Yeah. Uh, I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to travel um, with my friend. She, you know, she's such a workaholic. So getting her like out of out of the Bay Area and like in my like, hey, I want you to use your vacation to drive Route 66 with me. Do I have a plan? <laughs> no, obviously not. <laughs> and she's like, perfect, let's do it. <laughs> this is the same person. When we turned 18, we went to Europe together. We like backpacked and had to figure out how to exchange money and how to function in every single country that we went to (laughs) because this was like, you know, 2000. So (laughs) it was interesting. Um, I guess really it was just nice to feel like I could be myself in all my crazy eccentric like film weirdness way and that is such a rare thing with with travelers that are not photographers pam is not i gave her two cameras maybe she shot like two pictures (laughs) the entire time (laughs) doesn't mean i wasn't shooting because i was and there was nothing like i didn't feel rushed she was she's just so easygoing and it's just so rare to have a friend like that so Yeah, I'm very thankful for that. I'm happy to be home. I'm a little sad as well because something about running away from your problems is kind of amazing. (laughs) Yeah, if you keep busy, the depression isn't there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) So yeah, I'm a person and I go through uh, mental and, you know, just like anybody else, breakdowns and I am kind of getting on medication and trying to figure that out and um, still loving photography. This is like, this podcast has really been such a beautiful thing for me and through the pandemic. And I've, I've had people tell me that listening to it has been so helpful. So I guess in that way, I, um, I agree. It's been like that for me too. This has been like such a savior in so many ways. So yeah, just kind of picking myself up from where I was, going to develop some film, do some more podcasts. This is our third anniversary. So salut to three years of uh, dealing with you, Eric. Yeah, I know. That's a lot to ask of anybody. 
It's a lot. You know, at- honestly, the because we live in different cities, I think it just works out perfectly. I only have to see you when I turn on my uh, <laughs> webcam. <laughs> it's true. I don't show up at your door. No, no, you don't. No. Okay, so that is basically what's going on with me. I didn't think you needed all of that, but there it is. So, Eric. Yeah. Do you have something to tell us that's maybe a little more positive? No, I don't. I'm coming off <laughs> of a like a bad photo weekend. Oh, no. Yeah. I went out east again, and it was... I was camping, so I had a really good time camping, like I do. Mm-hmm. But the morning, it was supposed to be cloudy, and I was kind of excited for that. But it was, the light was just weird. It was supposed to be like dark, puffy clouds. But it was instead like a thin gauze covering the sun with like wispy clouds and like so many jet contrails just filling the sky. You mean like those chemtrail thingies? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the chemtrails, exactly. (laughs) So the high clouds, like I said, it was kind of gauzy. So it knocked a stop or two off of the light. So instead of metering like at um, EV fifteen, it was it was giving me like EV thirteen and fourteen, even though it looked bright and sunny. So it was really off putting and weird. So still shadows, but everything was very muted, kind of like shooting in smoke, but not interesting. I don't know. Yeah, and the contrails essentially wrecked every shot. Mm. You know, I don't I don't like having them in in the shot. There's really nothing you can do with them. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that technically dates the photo. Well, I'm not worried so much about that, but I think it just takes you out of this imaginary world that I'm trying to create where jets don't (laughs) exist. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) But I did manage to shoot three rolls, none of which I've developed yet, and a few four by fives, including two glass dry plates and two dry tin types. Yes. None of this... which I've developed yet either. <laughs> no, but I'm excited. Yeah, we're going to, that's po- possible uh, dev party well, the in, in the future. The definitely going to be a dev party. After I figure it out, I fucked up my first tintype shooting it. Um, I left the yellow filter on, which should have filtered out basically all of the light. So I shot it again. What I on what I you know hoping was unexposed plate, but I have a feeling that a little bit of the light got through, and that you're gonna have like a little what what'll look like like camera shakes or something. So while I was shooting one of my favorite spots, which is an old bridge over like a desolate little creek, two women on horseback came along, trailing two additional pack horses, or I think one was a donkey. Mm-mm. It was a horse pretty sure it was a donkey and they halted on the bridge for a little bit and i was able to photograph them on glass although there's probably too much movement there because the horse horses on glasses that's tough to do um but i got it on four by five and i did i did develop that and it looks fun i posted that what will be last week for you guys and the algorithm ate it so Go and find it was it. such a great shot yeah it was so beautiful really like romantic very i don't know there's you do something even just with like the cows in your shots. I don't know what it is. It's kind of like the flower thing. Like I just, there's a gentleness about it. I don't know. Maybe because there's like vegan undertones or something. I don't know. It's so weird. (laughs) Vegan undertones. They'll get you every time. (laughs) So before I shot the bridge, I went to this place called wall Lake 
a place that I've been wanting to visit for a long time. And it was okay. The sky kind of ruined it. I think it'd be a good a good shot if it weren't for the sky. So while I was setting up my camera, there was the Chamonix 4x5, it fell. And it hit really hard on a rock. Oh, no. Uh, the, the ground glass did not break. The lens <sighs> did not break. Thank goodness. So that's, that's good. But it bent the hell out of the rear standard. Oh, shit. So yesterday I took it apart, and there are two pieces only that are bent. So if I could get replacement pieces for those, it'd be great. But I did manage to bend them and hammer them back into somewhat of a, of a straight shape. I think I could probably do a little bit better if I had like two large pieces of metal and a blowtorch. But basically it's okay. And the nice thing about a view camera is that, you know, what you see is what you get. So if it, I, th I think it's still level, but it might not be like completely flush. So mm -hmm. that's okay. Cause I can, I can see what I'm doing you know, in the viewfinder and whatever is in the viewfinder is exactly what you're going to get on the, on the plate or on the, on the, on the film. So it could have been a lot worse. I got very lucky. Well, I don't know, very, not as unlucky as I, as I could have gotten. Right before my trip, I broke the ground glass, uh, for my eight by 10. Right. Yeah. So, and I haven't, um, I haven't replaced that yet. So I haven't been messing with that but it was a bummer that was it was just a perfect excuse to be able to use it i was like oh my god i'm gonna go out so yes like i'll have time on vacation i'm gonna take eight by ten i didn't take any eight by ten because my fucking glass broke and it broke the afternoon before i was leaving yeah less than 24 hours so calling a place trying to find it was not, it was, no. I tried and it, it didn't work out for me very well. So unless you're glass to spray. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, um, could have been a lot worse. So. I think I might, I mean, this is from, this is like an old, um, was it Kodak number two oh, D right. yeah. whatever. I kind of want to get, something with some grid marks on it anyways. Yeah, yeah, it's a good excuse. I, I when I shoot the Graflex, which doesn't have any grid markings in the back, it is very much like, okay, I guess this is fine. But having mm -hmm. the grid markings on the Chamonix, it, it's a big help, it's a real big help. It does, absolutely. Okay, let's get on with the show. Each episode, we jump out of our Chevy Corvairs, <laughs> tighten our scrunchies, make sure our second layer of socks are all scrunched down, maybe pop in a fresh stick of juicy fruit and uh, open the door. We don't lock it because it's the 80s. <laughs> Is we it? walk into the living room and push the button. We, what, we <laughs> Each episode, we ask our listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question we come up with. Vanya, what, what is the question this episode? Apart from actual film photography, what do you like best about film photography? Well, we have been kind of getting fewer and fewer calls each episode to the point where I was kind of like, well, maybe we shouldn't do the answering machine anymore. Maybe <gasps> it's just not 
working for us. But uh, this time around, I think we have 57 or something like that. We have a lot. This is an easier question. You've kind of got a little crazy with the questions. That couldn't be it. That's not possible. Let's push the button. Hi, you reached 262-6387. We're not home right now, but um, if you want to leave a message, you could right after the beat. Thank you. This is Logan at Logan Dodd's Film. The thing about photographs I like the most is that they're a connection to my history and my past. They're a tangible thing that you can look at and remember life lessons or memories or events. And I use them as, as tools to remember those, those lessons that I've learned over the years and to be able to reconnect to them and continue to move forward. I think it's weird that everything is kind of stuffed on our phones and our computers. And yeah, some some phones have those things like, oh, like a year ago, this is the really shitty picture you took of that weird scar on your arm. That <laughs> Whatever, you know, like, because I'll take pictures of like weird parts of <laughs> not like Wait, what? what I'm talking about, not like that. But, you know, like, hey, mom this mole, should I go get it checked out oh, or something gotcha. like, you okay. know? <laughs> so yeah, sometimes I'll get like a, like, oh, you took this picture two years ago. I'll be like, oh yeah, I wonder how that mole's doing. <laughs> that's that's a perfect example. Right? It is. It, 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 I guess. I'm not sure. Okay. So I'm sorry. Yeah. That didn't make any sense at all. Let me restart this. It's kind of like a pastime to collect things. I think with how everything is so digitized. Everything is put onto small little disks and drives. We don't really technically have to have pictures and out. It's almost rare or kind of old fashioned, I would say. Mm -hmm. So having that connection to photographs, film kind of helps with that. I think so. Uh, I I just read a story today about Depeche Mode. (laughs) We've talked about the Depeche Mode before. So back in the 80s, there was a guy who went to a Depeche Mode concert. He was a huge Depeche Mode fan. And he wanted to take pictures of the band while they were performing. And of course, back in the 80s, you weren't allowed to take cameras into into clubs or into stadiums or wherever they were playing. And so sometime during the set, he threw an unexposed roll of film up on the stage with a note attached to it saying something like, hey, I can't take pictures here, but you guys take some pictures and send them to me. And they did. That's so cool. So this probably would have been, I want to say 82-ish, somewhere in there. Mm. And just recently, I guess his wife found the pictures or refound the pictures and posted them onto Facebook saying, you know, telling the story. And I guess he died, he died really early at the age of 38 of a heart attack about 20, oh, shit. 20 some years ago. Yeah. I don't, know, I don't even know what to say about it, really. It just It's just really fun. The pictures are, they're, the, the guys in Depeche Mode look like Jim Henson's Depeche Mode babies. It's adorable. Yeah, they're like fresh-faced. They are. And- it's before the heroin. It's just, just, just <laughs> nice young men playing some fun music. Uh, Dave here, uh, dumpster underscore flower on the Instagram. Um, what I always find fun is how much photography is based off our site and then loading film requires putting it into a changing bag and essentially you have to see with your hands 
and I, I love the that juxtaposition and that's something that you have with film that you don't have with digital have you ever tried to load film in in the light i know you're not, you're not supposed to but if you've got a new holder and you're just loading it to test it out like just i'm not sure exactly but or a new camera and you have like a dummy roll or whatever and you try to to load something that you would normally load in, in darkness and you try to load it in the light even like maybe a plate under red light or something it is so difficult <laughs> <laughs> it I, it's so difficult to do that i, I try it i'm just like i i can i have to close my eyes to do it oh how cute are you serious <laughs> yeah oh yeah like when i was in the dark room i was unloading x-ray film from a graphlex um what do they call the graphmatic back so there's like six yeah six uh sheets in there yeah i just scored one of those for a dollar yeah whatever and so i unloaded it and I was under red light, so I could see what I was doing. But I was like, "What? What? How do I do this? What's going on?" I couldn't figure it out. And so finally, yeah, I closed my eyes. How funny! Yeah, it it's almost out. like yeah, you just don't need your sight for that. You're used to the the ridge marks and yeah. and how things are done in in the dark. Yeah, and it is. I'm I'm actually I really I'm glad that he brought this up because when we talk, I I talk a lot to photographers, digital photographers, um, because, you know, this is Los Angeles, everybody's a digital photographer. So, um, it comes up a lot and they're like, oh, wow, that seems like so hard or whatever. I'm like, it's, it's not even, it's not that it's like hard, but yeah, it is more steps. And one of those steps is, yeah, like doing those small tasks makes it so special and, and so much fun. It, that it makes it its own thing. Yeah. You just don't, you don't get to use your hands as much as we all used to. And, uh, finding a hobby or finding something that, you know, creative to do using your hands is like so important, at least for me, for my like mental health. Mm-hmm. It's just really nice. So yeah, I have done it in the daylight, but the only time I have was to show someone. Uh, Morgan came over and she was developing her first roll of film. Mm-hmm. So I had a dubby roll. I showed her how to do it in the daylight. And then she did it in the daylight. And then she did it one more time without trying not to look at it. And then we went for it and she did everything that I taught her inside the dark bag and she got it nice. first, first try. So... Yeah, that's the only time I've ever done it. Like, you know, obviously. Yeah. Kind of can't do it in the light. <laughs> I think my favorite non-film part of film photography is, aside from the community, of course, the process itself. I don't have anything to do with uh, people hunching over the back of the camera to see if the shot turned out right. And judging the whole shoot by that postage stamp on the back of a camera, I don't have to... Uh, take the same picture 50 times wondering if like the one hair is going to make a big difference i don't have to uh, stare at a computer for hours while sitting in a chair for more hours to edit them i don't have to sift through thousands i just shoot a few rolls and develop them which is very therapeutic scan them and uh, the film itself takes care of a few of the editing steps and yeah so i'm running out of time jamie maldonado I like the idea that that film is simpler. 
Because a lot of things, you know, we, we switched to digital because it was easier in a lot of ways. It was easier and it was cheaper in a lot of ways. You know, especially like motion pictures. It's so much easier to, to film a motion picture digitally than it is on film. And in a lot of ways, it's so much easier to do like a photo shoot on digital, I would assume. I've never, never really done that, but I would assume it is. But Jimmy's bringing up a lot of points here where the simplicity of it, though it may be, I guess, like more technical, and, or at least technical in a different way, that it's still um, maybe a simple process is, uh, is, is, is a way to go here. Digital photography has become this like super hyper realistic. Every shot has to look super crisp. Yeah. It needs to be bright, but also it needs to have this contrast. So it's, it, even if you have the proper settings to your digital camera, you still have to process it through Photoshop because that's what people are paying you for is that yeah. crispy, bright, unrealistic. Um, look that that people want right now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so film is obviously embracing more of the reality of what people look like. Being able to manipulate it with like different film emulsions and changing settings that way, but kind of embracing the fact that these are not really you can manipulate, but not people aren't really manipulating film photos and making people skinnier or making their boobs bigger. <laughs> it's just not, I, I mean, maybe they are, I don't know, but <laughs> seems like you might as well just shoot digital if you are doing that. Yeah, I think there's becoming um, not a divide. I mean, we're already kind of divided with it, but there's, there's definitely a different, they're being seen as two very different things now. And yeah. I'm okay with that. Hey, it's Alan being Alan. What I like best about film photography, except for film photography, is waiting. This is hilarious. <laughs> because he told me that he was like, oh my god, I called in. Okay. I just gave Alan the Yashica Mat 124G. And I have literally a roll in front of me. I gave him the uh, JCH street pan. And he's like, Oh, if I finish it, I'm like, look, if you finish it or not, it's fine. But let me develop it. He finished it. I gave him another roll. It was like a Portra 160 roll of 220, like the good stuff. Oh, wow. And I, to I know like <laughs> Spoil spoiled him. I told him not to develop it until I developed this role just in case. Cause it's, just, you know, it's, it's more expensive. Yeah. So um, I told him that once I was done recording and doing everything with the podcast and work that I would develop this. He sent me a message today that he couldn't help himself. <laughs> he couldn't <laughs> wait. <laughs> and he went and got his role developed. <laughs> wow. So maybe his favorite thing is not waiting. Maybe not. <laughs> Hi, this is Jack from England. Um, I think the best thing about film photography is the restrictions. So this would be like the cost of film, obviously the cost of Devon's scan for anyone that does that. Um, the number of available shots per roll. I think all of it forces you to be much more considerate about the image you're taking. I mean, I'm just a hobbyist photographer that started with digital. I mean, you can take as many photos as you want and then just choose whatever you like. But I found this to lean towards a very lazy and inconsiderate photographic style since you'd by just by taking lots of photos, you, in back of your head, you know you probably get an image you're hoping for, and so you could be a bit more relaxed about what you was doing. 
And I just found this to effectively equate to kind of a quantity over quality approach. And so I found that I've learned way more about assessing like photographic scenes and the composition about the images I'm taking far more from film than I ever did on digital. So yeah, thank you for everything that you do. That's interesting. I mean, we're hearing more from people or more and more from people who started with digital because of their age, you know, nothing wrong with that. And then they're, they're discovering film after they've learned how to shoot digitally. That was kind of the opposite of how we've done it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing more in the, more of this because you know, we're all getting older and that's just how time works, I guess. Mm, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to remind you of time. <laughs> but it's interesting to see that, you know, like that when we were like younger, if we wanted to like appreciate a scene more, we couldn't just like shoot it on film because we were already shooting it on film. So appreciating a scene more would be like, a person who like sketches, right? I mean, that would be, that would kind of be that equivalent. Yeah, I would say so. Huh. Do you ever do that? Do you ever sketch a, a scene? No, I'm really good at drawing like maps though. I have a feeling that is not true. It's not, okay. but I, I think I'm good at it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Very helpful. I, I like what Jack said. I think it's so great to hear. It is definitely like 100% more thoughtful to, for me, at least my, my little light meter in my head has been exercised and I feel very confident in where I'm at, uh, in my, in just photography in general, it's nice to not rely on something to judge a scene for me. I have to do it myself. And honestly, that is such a huge part of why I like film photography because I want to break it down and and do things by hand and do things by myself and and use my creative process to figure out a scene instead of just pushing down a button and and getting a hundred shots <laughs> per minute. Like I don't I don't want to go through that. No, no. Hey guys, it's Dave Fry. What I think I enjoy most outside of the look of film and and kind of film itself is really that hunt for the perfect moment. And I don't think it always leads to a great picture, uh, especially with film. A lot of times what you think is going to be an absolute fantastic picture turns out not to be. But if you enjoy that moment, if if you really enjoy that experience, then getting a great picture is awesome, but it's not necessarily the most important thing. And I really feel like that hunt and that search for that perfect moment is what I enjoy the most. Yes. 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 You know, you can you can you can say things like I don't care if all of my pictures are duds because it was just about being there in the moment and if none <laughs> of them turn out, I at least had that that wonderful experience. Well, I think I use it as like I'll just come back if I mess it up, which I want to anyways. Yeah, and I do that. I I return to places all the time because of that. I would like to. I mean, this trip, I didn't didn't do as much as I set out to do. I I did as much as I could. But yeah, yeah, there's like plenty of shots that I I wasn't able to take. When I was at the Bear Paw Battlefield, this is the third time I was there this past summer, there was a huge, huge storm rolling in. And so I went up on top of the hill, which is a really great idea when there's a lot of lightning, get as high as you possibly can. Mm. And 
I wanted to take a picture of the spot where Chief Olicott fell. And this is my third attempt at doing it. And I took the picture and I was like, yeah, I fucking nailed this. Packed up in the rain, packed up and then walked back down to the car, which is about a mile, you know, mile round trip. I just developed that sheet last night. It is horrible. Oh no. <laughs> it is really bad. Like third attempt going at shooting back for this. The fourth time. Yeah, and I will. And I'd shot, I'm looking through my notes and like, oh, it says here that I shot another another sheet of this with other with, with another, you know, another emulsion. And as I, I don't remember developing that. And so I looked and I had developed it according to my notes. And then I looked in my binder to where it was and it's blank. Oh no. <laughs> so two different times. It's just, it's just, I don't know what happened. Bad metering or I don't know. But for some reason I cannot get this shot. And it was such a beautiful moment that I think if I knew that I wasn't going to get the shot, I could have enjoyed it. I could have enjoyed, you know, being there in the in the rain and the lightning. Um but I, I didn't, I wasn't able to enjoy it because I was hell bent on getting this photo. So I think there's a happy medium I got to find. And I think that might be just waiting there for a storm rather than running from my car to get up there to, to, to capture it. So No, I understand. I, I think, and I think that's what I assumed like the hunt or what he meant the hunt. Maybe, yeah. Was, it, it's, um, you kind of like fixate or focus on like a specific thing that you want to shoot and it's fun to try to find it and when you find it you're like yeah this is this is this is what i was looking for you know what i mean you're like yeah. i want this good light i want this this and when everything kind of comes together it's exciting yeah i feel the same way when i like go thrifting i, I like to have purpose when i walk in because i will just like lose my mind and i can't like even move i have to know what i'm in there for <laughs> Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is John, long-time listener, first-time caller. And one of the things that I love about film photography is that it is okay to lose control. And what I mean by that is, is once you press the shutter release button, you are effectively giving control of your image to the little tiny molecules of silver halide. And if you've done everything right up to this point, you, you may get an image or you may not. And that, I think, is one of the inherent beauties um, of the film photography and the chemical photographic process. Um, with digital, you just keep pushing the little cookie cutter button and fiddling with the settings until you get the effect that you want. And to me, there's there's no appeal to that. Anyways, love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Looking forward to the next episode. Bye. So I was thinking about this and it didn't used to be that way. You know, you used to be able to like mathematically figure out exactly how the photo was going to look because you needed to. You know, if you were doing like a photo shoot for, I don't know, Depeche Mode <laughs> and you know, they wanted this, the photos to look a certain way, you had to make that happen. You had to know what your end result was before even taking the shot. There was no losing control because you had to have that complete control. And if you lost mm -hmm. control, you you lost the path to your goal. But with digital, because now with digital, you can take 
a photo and look at it on the camera and say, okay, it's basically what I'm looking for. I can probably get it to do the exact thing in, in post, which now that you can do that with digital, it frees up the creativity of film. And like he says, losing control or letting it go and letting the silver do what it does. You can still control it as much as possible. There's definitely scenes that I'll shoot that I know how it's gonna look, you know, just from experience. You know, I'm shooting from a pan with this filter in this light with this camera. I know what I'm getting, even though it looks nothing like this, the clouds are gonna be angry. And I, I, I know that. There's scenes that I can make, make look that way straight, you know, straight on the film. But I do like that digital has gifted us the art of film photography. Not that, like you see those, those shitty memes going like, well, film photography was shot on film, it's automatically art. And you know, fuck people who think, who, who, who post memes like that. That's just, that's just really shitty. I think it's bullshit because like whatever you shoot, whatever, if you want it to be art, it's art. And if you shoot it on film and you automatically think it's art because of that, it's art because that's how art works. And if you have some like fucking neckbeard asshole telling you that's not art because you just think it's art because you shot it on film, those people really need to just explode in hell. I think I've lost what I'm trying to say, but I'm standing by it. <laughs> I was listening. So John, thank you so much for first time calling. I appreciate it. When I was listening to the message, I was like, oh my gosh, can I like get a copy of this and listen to it right before I go out and shoot? Because it was like, so it made me so happy and inspired the way that he explained it. You can tell that you can, you can feel his passion and, and all everybody that's called in, you can hear it, how much passion they have for photography yeah. and that's so awesome to hear like it makes me so excited like i'm like <laughs> freaking out sorry <laughs> hey guys just a quick recording uh i was listening to your episode on when you guys interviewed rebecca what if we have a camera that a serial killer owned what about that that'd be crazy i think he's trying to tell us something I'm not sure what that something is, and I will let that to the imagination of the listener. I'm going to say that of every hundred SLR Nikon and Canons from the 70s and 80s, at least one of them was with some sort of creepy male photographer who exploited women and shot some very interesting photos. And honestly, most Polaroids ever. <laughs> Yeah, if most Polaroids could talk. We wouldn't want to hear what they had to say. Hello there, this is Jaya. Um, I think one of the things that I most enjoy about film photography that isn't actual film photography is the connection to history. Uh, using historical processes that in some cases are close to 200 years old and also, you know, using old equipment you know that uh, some some cameras that i have are uh, close to 100 years old so yeah a connection to history welcome the hell back no i missed him well i was trying to surprise him i took a picture when i was at i went to mr bing's his like local watering hole and mr beans bing's bean you know microscopic bing's b i n g s oh. it's just a bar in oh. san francisco it's supposedly has like an underground secret lair, like kind of speakeasy, but every time I've gone, I've never been able to find it. <laughs> okay, yeah, this one's easy, and I don't think I'm going to be alone here. 
the best part of film photography for me is the community that I have found through doing it. Um, and I've got to say that this podcast has really played an integral role in that. Not everybody in the analog photography community is chill, uh, and y'all attract a bunch of really chill people. I have made friends online with people that I found through this podcast that have become friends in real life. And outside of the podcast, too, I mean, there's a lot of really welcoming, enthusiastic people. And I think it just kind of comes with the fact that this is a hobby that is inherently kind of niche. And a lot of people are always excited to see that there are other people out there uh, helping to keep it alive. And it's been really meaningful to me in a lot of different ways. So uh, thanks. And uh, yeah, that's my answer. Thank you, Nick. I I am always so happy and like impressed with the quality of listeners that we have. Like our listeners kick ass. I know. They're so know. we're lucky. They're really wonderful. And you know, hearing uh, hearing about you know different listeners finding each other because of the podcast is I don't I don't know. That's freaky. It's pretty cool. No, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, even even Alan, I, I I have this huge blister on the back of my my ankle because I walked around downtown with Alan and I came home and I think we talked and I was like I was I felt so thankful for the podcast that he like came into my life. He's he's a, such a wonderful wonderful person yeah. and I just I feel the same way. There's there's so many different types of people that are doing this hobby. And that's the cool thing. It's like, we probably would have never, well, I don't know. Maybe yeah, I don't know if that's true. at a show. Yeah. I but it's like, I got to connect with you. <laughs> I've, I've connected with so many people and I'm so thankful because it is, it does feel like, I have a community of people that I can totally geek out on, you know, yeah. geek. Like I just went on a, a another podcast. Um, and you should have heard that conversation. It was like, this is the nerdiest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> the nerdiest. And it was amazing. I loved it. I had such a good time. That's awesome. So yes, Nick is amazing. That makes me so, so happy. Um, and thank you for, for listening. I feel lucky that we have like such an amazing group of people that, that listen to us and have listened to us. It's, I yeah. mean, for our third year anniversary. <laughs> You know, we're, we're going to break up today, and I guess we're not. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> guess not. Okay. And our last one is pretty damn impressive. Hey, this is Beatrice B. Thornton on Instagram. My favorite thing about film photography lately has been making my own developers for black and white film using plants. I started off with Caffinol last year, and since about February have been developing and printing with homebrew developers. I use recipes based on Caffeinol C, except I substitute steeped leaves, nuts, or seeds for coffee. The developers do mostly work, although I've lost many roles through overdeveloping. Aside from making the developers themselves, this practice is also a way that I've been able to feel closer to where I live in the Bay Area. I'm learning more about native and invasive plants and their ecosystems. In most of my work, I try to include plants forged the same day and from the same general area where I take a photo. Some of my favorites so far have been redwood needles, acacia, sagebrush, and acorns. Thank you. Holy shit. <laughs> I have 
Can you- so many questions. I know. So we're obviously going to beg her to come on. There's so many questions I have for her. This is so exciting. And just the fact that she's intentionally photographing in a space and learning about the different plants and using the plants in the area that she photographed. Oh my God, this is so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what to think about any of this. We spend, like people who are like into developing, which I'm not one of those people, but I'm kind of adjacent to those people. So you spend a lot of time with, with, you know, I'm gonna say harsh chemicals, but you know, actual, you know, powdered chemicals and all of that. And to be able to do that also, with with plants because of the chemicals in the plants, that's something really interesting. I'd like to understand, like, okay, on like a biological level, what's happening here? Yeah, like, I get, that's magic. Yeah, like why I get why why you know coffee works. I understand that. I get why that that one beer that had you know that you can use to develop. I get why that works. Why does sagebrush work? Why do why do pine needles work? So yeah, I'm like this is like <laughs> some humbled state shit right here. <laughs> It, it is it's amazing. It is. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so exciting! Thank you so much, B, for calling. And wow, like yeah, what a great way to end this. So, thanks uh, to everybody who called in. You all should give a listen to our next episode of Dev Party to hear our own take on the question. Hopefully, but until then, what is the next question we're asking? How did you get good at film photography? This assumes that you are good. Actually, no, this assumes that you think you're good. And that's important. <laughs> you should think you're good. So how did you get where you are? So call our answering machine and leave us a message. And by call up, we mean go to Instagram and leave us a voice message. And if we like you very, very, very much, which we probably do, we will play it on the next episode. The deadline will be the 4th of October. Ooh, bring out the fireworks. If you've listened to our podcast more than a couple of times, you'll recognize the name Ariella Badenas, aka Ariella. She's just published her first book. There is nothing remarkable about this place. Actually, how would you say that? There is nothing remarkable about this place. There is nothing remarkable about this place. There's nothing remarkable about this place. Well, however you would say it, we're super excited to finally be talking to her. So let's make with the chit chat. Hello. Hello. Hey. How's it going? Good. How are you? Very good. Awesome. Nice. So yeah, Ariella made a book and we invited her on to talk about it. So can you kind of explain the basic idea for the book and how you came up with it? So it really started because of my friend Bridget. And so Bridget and I go way back. We met in university, oh my God, over a decade ago and... So I I went to Saskatoon because of her. So she moved there last summer. He got into the graduate program at the University of Saskatchewan. So when I went there in July 2021, um, she also just moved there like the month, like in 
June. So we were both sort of exploring the place and me personally like it was a time when still you know well covid is still very pretty much a thing but you know even like last year it's it's still like we're very much in the thick of it but you know flights are opening up and I was like oh I really just want to go somewhere and so I was like well there's this big middle part of Canada that I've never (laughs) explored (laughs) might as well I mean and my best friend is there. The flights were cheap. And so, you know, and it's summer. So I just really wanted to go explore a place I've never been to. And so I went there not really expecting much because, you know, the prairies are, they're called the prairies. <laughs> and so I was just like, you know what, let's just go. From like, you know, being in a very unhappy place like earlier that year to like and like not being able to just pick up my camera for like I, w- I want to say like three months or something and then so I went there I was just like oh, okay I'm on a trip I need to bring a camera I might as well but when I went there there's just something about it and like it's in boringness quote boringness and kind of like simplicity to Saskatoon that just was very hard to describe with words and maybe you know that's that's why I took so many photos so in 10 days I was able to shoot like 17 rolls of film from not being able to touch my camera to suddenly shooting that many photos there was just something about the place that really kind of enamored me and so and at the end of it I was like you know these these photos they're too special to just share on a on a phone or like a computer screen I really wanted to print it that's kind of the motivation behind the book you said in the introduction that you were really unhappy with photography Mm -hmm. and that you even sold your favorite camera (laughs) yes I did wow uh so why (laughs) why were you unhappy with photography What what did photography ever do to you Mm, well it's not so much photography itself it's more of like I guess what photography meant to me at the time so insider scoop it all started because I got dumped by someone yeah (laughs) step one step one experience heartbreak (laughs) (laughs) and use that to fuel your creative pursuits (laughs) it is true um but yeah, so yeah, like we were both very into photography and my like film photography in particular. So I don't know, it was just during a time when I'm like, oh, like, oh, this camera, everything just reminds me of it. And I was like, oh, I need to get rid of it. <laughs> what was the camera? It was my Nikon FE. I sold it. Well, I mean, you sound like you regret it a little bit. What, what did you shoot the project with? <laughs> Um, oh, the, I shot the project with uh, Practica. Oh, okay. Yeah, and Elon 70, right? Yes. So two very different cameras. Yeah. One that's like fully manual and one that has like top of the notch autofocus one 8,000 over speed. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you were attached to the, the Nikon, mm-hmm. what, how different was it shooting these other cameras for a project like this? And did you wish you oh. had the Nikon for this? Honestly, no. Like, when I got rid of the Nikon, it was almost liberating. Mm. (laughs) I felt like because it was my go-to camera for so long. And so now that I'm, like, not attached to that anymore, I can bring any camera that I want. So it almost feels like that's also my perspective now to dating. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no, totally. I could see that. I mean, detaching from that person, detaching from the camera, and then almost restarting and kind of um, re-examining your photography without that person is really liberating. So I totally respect that. Yeah. It's like now that I have all, like, I can pick any camera I want. Yeah. It's, right? It is true. <laughs> Just not the FE. Just not the FE. <laughs> Which is okay. There's plenty of Nikons to be had. There's so many. <laughs> Honestly, I've let go of Nikons now. I don't have a Nikon anymore. Oh, I'm wow. Like, oh. <laughs> killed the whole line. I kind of chose the two because one, I didn't want to like autofocus and like those modern SLRs are like very reliable, but sometimes the electronics just sort of fail. Mm -hmm. And that's why the practical is sort of my fail safe because it's like there's no batteries, mm -hmm. everything's mechanical. And so I know how to meter. So if anything happens, I, I still have a good backup. You take, you took all the photos, 17 rolls. Mm -hmm. When did the project congeal as a book? Or as a larger project, anyway. I decided it was going to be a book after I developed all of the roles. So I shot them in July. And then I pretty much developed all of the film within August, the following month. And so when I saw, when I was looking at the negatives through the light table, I was like, oh, th these are really good. <laughs> like, I really want to share these as a book. Yeah. Um, but so from August... I didn't scan the, any photos until like late January this year. So I didn't look at it for at least was that five months. Wow. So you really set it aside. Yes. I did. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And then I scanned them all in one go. I remember I scanned everything in two weeks. And then I took another break because I had to travel. I, I know myself well enough that if I start something, I want to finish it right away. Mm -hmm. But sometimes yeah. that's also like not necessarily a good thing. There was a time when I was like, oh, I can't narrow it down any further. I'm just going to make two books. <laughs> like The people who helped me edit the book, Trish Octavia Sharp, she helped me edit the book. And my sister, she also helped me in editing. Um, I think they really helped me push myself in a direction where you know just narrow it down a little more further into like and form a story out of yeah uh, let's talk about the cover uh with lots of photo books usually a photo that's in the book appears on the cover but you did something a little different uh so what's going on here I wanted to bend that rule a little bit <laughs> um so to give a description the the cover is just yellow and white stripes in the in the top part and like a green block in like the bottom half and just has the title and my name on it that's it the title of the book itself is sort of it's catchy enough to i think grab people's attention yeah i'm a fan and of so, long titles yeah <laughs> and so i wanted to kind of play around with that idea with the cover as well so you see this bright stripy green and yellow object and you're like what is this i want to pick it up and so that's one of the reasons why i did that but the design itself is actually um, an homage to the saskatoon flag so i wanted to sort of pay tribute to you know the place itself and the people who live there and it's also something that they will appreciate because you know as a person who lives there oh it's actually about us I pulled some of the photos. The first one I wanted to talk about is the one, and I think it's the dive bar with 
the guy sitting at the table, uh-huh. kind of looking down at the table. Yeah. That's one of those scenes that I would come upon and just be like, I need to photograph this and would never be able to. How do you get there to photograph that like mentally? I think just because it was also my first dive bar. So, <laughs> okay. so, so there was a novelty to like, oh my God, I've only ever seen these places in movies. I've never actually been inside one. And like, there's like this very like classic, almost very sad looking guy in a dive bar. <laughs> and so I just really wanted to take a photo of it. And I think I, I shot it. I was... I don't know how many feet away I was, but I shot it with the Practica and I didn't have a tripod. So I'm like, oh crap, there's not enough light. I think I'm just going to wing it. So I put my camera on top of the table and just hoped that it wouldn't be blurry. And then I hold it down. I held it down for, I think, two seconds or something. I don't even remember. So this is a long exposure. Yeah, it was very dark in there. <laughs> oh, and the dude is just sitting there too. He's un- yeah. unmoving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I'm very glad that he didn't move. That's for sure. <laughs> um, another one is is your spreads are, well, there's one that I think is a little sassy and I like it. It's on one side, it's, it's tombstones and on the other, it's a hole in the road. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's something just very like, very sassy about that. <laughs> How much did like the sequencing and, and like the spreads, how much time did you spend on things like that? Oh, very long time. <laughs> um, so I live in a very tiny apartment. And so I don't have the luxury of like a giant table to lay out all these photos or like a big wall. So I DIY the whiteboard. I just like got like two dry erase poster boards and put it in front of my closet. And that's how like I would sequence things and it it's facing my bed so it's the first and last thing i see when i wake up oh wow sometimes i would have like these random like bursts of like oh wait what if i just put this right image on the left and like see if that's like completely different and sometimes it made all the difference that pairing came about mostly because of like i think it was the bright orange that sort of like first it was more of like a visual thing like yeah. you know you connect colors right yeah sure there's um, like a, a lichen on one of the tombstones it's very orange yeah. and you have orange traffic cones in the other photo yeah um but i think i showed it to one of my friends and he was like i don't know if this is intentional but there's actually like quite a bit of religious undertone in your book and i'm like oh I never really saw it that way. <laughs> I'm like, thanks for pointing that out. So I think I think that's how that pair came to be. I'm like, oh, maybe I need to think about this religious thing a little more. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's not like it was I'm like this creative genius that had like all these ideas and like political opinions. It just really starts out sometimes with like I I think the orange really pops. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's a lot to be said for aesthetics. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's another spread where I think it's, I don't know if it's two photos or it's one photo split in half, mm-hmm. but it's the one where there's like the, a blue dumpster on the right side and what looks oh. like pallets or something on yes. the left. Is that one photo? It's actually two photos. Is it two photos? Okay. Yeah. 
yeah, so it's two photos. It's the same wall, but it's two photos. It was more mostly for the sequencing of that section. Mm-hmm. It's very subtle, and I hope people notice it. But even if they don't notice it, I think that's the whole intention behind the subtleness. It's slightly skewed. The intention behind that is if you go through the pages in that section, I'm trying to line up the horizons mm-hmm. in both photos. It starts with that spread with the with the two images of the river. I think to me, that's like one of my favorite spreads. And my sister helped me kind of, I don't know, I guess design it that way. Um, I really wanted to share where like, this the, the the city of Saskatoon itself, like one of the biggest portions of it is really the Saskatchewan River and how it flows throughout the city. So I wanted to show how the river flows through like different parts of it and how your brain just kind of fills in the gap in the middle. Yeah. Naturally I also just shoot portrait, I wanna say seventy percent of the time. Oh wow. One of your friends who was helping mm-hmm. you edit said that like well you know you don't need words in here was that an option for you at one point yes really yeah trish actually was the one who (laughs) pushed me to write something Mm -hmm. she was because she was asking me in the beginning i think it was towards like i want to say halfway through the process i was getting all these versions done and i was showing it to her like "Mm, i feel really good about this version but i want to know what you think and she was like, the images themselves are good, but I think there's a deeper meaning to these photos. So I'm like, you don't have to tell me the answer, but I want you to think about why did you take these particular photos? What made you press the shutter? I think there's a deeper story to that. And if you can't verbalize it now, try to write it. Like, what were you feeling at the time? Or what was on your mind. But there's something about this place that I think it's strong enough for people to form their own opinion about it. But I, so I was like, I don't think it needs words. But I think sharing like my story and like, and then showing the people the story of the book is, I think it just adds that extra layer and also kind of like ties it in a neat little package. So so what lessons have you learned from doing this book that you might possibly apply to the next one? Mm. <laughs> we won't hold uh, you to it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, hmm. it's hard. I want to play around with square images. I think that might be something out of my comfort zone might be like the broader answer. Um, Would you shoot square or crop square? Maybe both. Maybe. And no one, no one will know. No one will know. (laughs) Any idea. Yeah. See. (laughs) Before any of that, and actually before this episode airs, you have a workshop coming up on the 24th. Yes. For, for us right now, it is still in the future. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, it's basically a talk on how to make a photo book or slash zine. Who really can define what is a zine in a book? People but, do. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it's going to be a, a, a little talk on like making your own book. And again, like one of the 
motivation behind doing it. Like I've only really made one book, so I don't feel like I have the authority to to teach people. But it's more so just a way of of sharing. Like, oh, this is how I did it. Yeah, you can definitely like tweak a lot of things, or like you know, everyone has different resources and amount of time and like so it's not there's not just one way to to approaching it right Mm -hmm. so and the more people i meet especially locally here in vancouver like i'm like we like your photos are really great and like it would be so awesome if like you could share this as a book and like people are get really excited about it but like most most of the time they're just intimidated by the idea of like you know, putting things together and like finding a printer and like using InDesign or like software and like things that, you know, they're very unfamiliar with. So I just really wanted to like put out all this information to people who who need it or people who are curious about it. And I'm like, well, here's what you can do. And it's not just defined as to this process. You can look at it in different ways. And like, I actually... I reached out to Liz Potter because I'm like, Liz, like there's, I really love your books and like how you make them at home. Like, I think this is really great. And so I'm sharing some of her work on Saturday. Oh, cool. And it doesn't have to be like this grand project of like spending, I don't know, $10,000 on printing how many hundreds of copies that that you don't even know what you do. You can just make five or 10 and like share it with with people. And, you know, in this, in this day and age, like I've sent my books to New Mexico to a person I've never met. So, <laughs> so the world is your oyster. So like, like really like i i just want like the idea of making books and zines more accessible and so like it's a free it's a free talk and hopefully like out of it more people will be inspired to to do it at least have fun you know yeah do it. yeah because it is incredibly fun um, <laughs> yeah so ariella how um how can people get a hold of you I'm very active through Instagram, so people can DM me or shout there. I'm. Um, you can also email me. My website is ariella a r i e l a b. dot c a, and my email is hi at ariella b. dot c a. And your your name on Instagram is ariella with eight a's at the end. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> It, yes, it, that it is correct. Ariella. Ariella. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with us. No, I'm very happy to be here, and I'm so glad that you guys enjoy the book. Uh, we wish you luck. I hope you have a bunch of people come and and take your workshop. I think that's such a great idea, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yes, and everyone buy her book. There is nothing remarkable about this place. All right, thank you. <laughs> Bye. Right. Bye. Some of your friends and neighbors 
on the inside waiting for the show to begin and we can't keep them waiting much longer. Now look, this is a scripted show. It's a broadcast show. This show has been set aside for the men and men only. No ladies and no babies. You must be 18 years of age over to see this show because you're under 18. You wouldn't understand it if you was over 80. Lord knows you waited too long and your heart couldn't stand it. For many of us, it is state fair season. Counties and towns all over the country celebrate their fall harvest with a week-long carnival complete with fried food, livestock judging, and rides for the kids. An attraction missing from the traveling carnival is one that's been there from the beginning, the girly show. Existing in one way or another since the mid-1800s, this exotic adult-only feature evolved from girls in very modest Victorian sleepwear to strip teases behind backlit curtain to full nudity to the lunch counter. Lunch counter? Anyway, by the 1960s, every traveling carnival had one or more strip shows going on towards the back of the fairgrounds all through the night. They reached their apex in the mid-1970s, just when photographer Susan Mazelis was beginning her career. Susan Mazelis was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1949. She received her master's from Harvard, studying under documentary photographer Barbara Norfleet. It was her first and only photography course. As part of the course, she took four by five portraits of her neighbors and then asked them to write a bit about the picture. She found that her subject's own words revealed much more than a photograph ever could. She'd carry this idea with her to the carnival. After graduation in 1970, she took a job as a film editor for the documentary Basic Training by Frederick Wiseman before teaching photography to elementary school children in the Bronx. This led to a collection of work she called The Print Street Girls where she photographed teenagers from Little Italy in New York. While establishing more photography programs for kids, she traveled the Midwest with fellow photographer Dick Rogers, shooting carnivals during the summer of 1972. The route brought them to the East Coast and New England, where she found her first girly show. The words girls galore were painted in bright letters across a banner above the stage. On the stage itself was a talker, sometimes known as a barker, who called out to the crowd, enticing them and warning them of what would take place inside the tent. As a woman, she wasn't allowed to enter. A few weeks later, the carnival circuit brought her to Allentown, Pennsylvania, where she bumped into one of the girls in a bathroom. She struck up a conversation, and Susan was invited to the dressing room. With this access, she was allowed to photograph the girls as they got made up for the stage. A few weeks later, she was allowed to shoot the stage from the dressing room door. With the close of the season, she resolved to return the following year to create an entire project around the girl shows. This would eventually become the basis of her book, Carnival Strippers. And here is a short clip of Susan explaining her project. I'm 23, 24 when I'm making this photograph and the question of the women's movement of are women there to be the object of men is the principal question I was asking. I made the photographs, but I also wanted to hear what they had to say. They each had a different life that led to the carnival and then I followed the life of the carnival over several summers. The book itself, now in its third edition, is a very uncensored look at what went on inside the tent, behind the curtain and backstage. Shot over the course of three seasons, the book leads you in from the bally with shots of what anyone, man, woman, and child could see as they walk by, 
Here are women in bikinis, ticket sellers, carnival talkers, roughies, and mostly men gawking at the pre-show. We are then, like Susan, allowed into the dressing room where the dancers lounge about in every state of dress. Quickly following, we can see the stage and a bit of the act, though the act itself is never really Susan's focus. Here, her photography captures two extremes on the same extreme. One of the ladies waiting, even relaxing and sleeping between shows, and the other of mostly the lunch counter. The remaining photos are portraits, some in plain clothes, other in costume, and others, nothing at all. But what makes this photography book unique are the words. These come exclusively from the girls, carnival workers, and even audience members she photographed. Like her 4x5 project with her neighbors, she understood that much more could be gained by letting her subjects speak for themselves. Here we're introduced to women like Lena, Ginger, Shorty, and Coffee. There's Patty the manager, herself a former stripper, Tom the talker, Glenn the roughie, Chuck the manager, and various man in the audiences. Along with her camera, she carried a small tape recorder to preserve what her subject said to her. A few of these recordings were included in the second edition of the book, and we'll play a handful of them for you today. These phones up here, they only see this once a year, and if they don't see it, they're not going to come back. So uh, go out there and show them what they want to see. They want to see women, and they want to see them just in all the naked glory, just the way that Mother Nature made them. Susan began this three-year-long adventure in 1973. She brought with her the self-awareness that she was the outsider. Her upbringing and Harvard education placed her essentially in a different class from the women she was photographing. She even admitted that it was her first real experience with the working class. Growing up, Mays Alice had privilege of choices. What she found at the carnival were often women who had few. Regardless, Susan approached the workers without the desire to exploit them or glorify them. She photographed and recorded them as they were, as they wanted to be photographed and recorded. This was in many ways a collaboration with the workers. She gained their trust by simply being herself and allowing them to express the same. Her photographs are not sentimental or contrived. There is no hint of the male gaze from her camera, only from the men she also photographed. Now, fellas, when the girls leave the stage, they're going to be wearing two things. That's a pair of shoes on their feet and a big smile on their face. Show start right now. Give them a little walking music. We're starting now. If you care to go, showtime. Susan might be at her most artistic when she photographed the outside of the tent at the ballet stage. There's the photo of Patty the manager holding a wad of cash while Larry, one of the talkers, hit with right hand raised like a preacher, calls to the audience. A girl, seen only from the knees down, stands on the counter where Patty is seated. The photo is a night shot with the Ferris wheel and the carnival lights in the background. Apart from the legs of the girl, this could be any random carnival photo. While women were not allowed into the tent, they were often seen with their husbands outside, watching a bit of the pre-show and listening to the talkers. In one photo, two older couples are gathered before the ballet stage. One of the men, grinning, is whispering into the other's ear. While the listening man's wife is looking at one of the girls, the grinning man's wife is looking straight into the camera, dead on. Again, this is a night shot with a tilt-a-whirl in the background, and the entire scene is illuminated by stage lights. And though kids were barred from the tent, there were more than welcome at the public stage. In another photo, as an adolescent boy looks up to one of the girls whose legs are just visible in the photo, another man eats a hot dog as another position behind the boy is seen pleading. He's wearing a Harley shirt and is sporting some 
pretty icky 70s facial hair. The adolescent boy, however, looks interested, his brow furrowed as he is trying to understand what he's missing. The text accompanying these photos contains just as much variety. We hear from a man in the audience who lists his top five girl shows and various reasons why. We get some background on Patty from Jesse, a roughie. Larry the Talker tells us all about his job and how he dressed and arranged the girls depending on which town he was in. Meanwhile, Joe the Talker explains why he won't give cops and politicians a free show. The managers, like Hooks, Patty, and Chuck, give some behind-the-scenes details on what it takes to become and remain one of the girls. A few pages of the text come from audience members. The men are generally crass, but friendly enough, hopeful. On one page, opposite the photo of the grinning, whispering man, a man goes back and forth with Shorty, a stripper, about what she does when she goes home and whether any of the girls actually find any of the men attractive. In another interview, opposite the photo of a much younger kid, two men try to convince Shorty to get into their car. One offers $100. Here's a small clip of that exchange. You're a dirty dog. No, I'm not. <laughs> yes, you are. But money talks. <laughs> yes, it does. Money talks and bullshit walks. Right? That's right. <laughs> and who cares about money? Money isn't going to make happiness, okay? I'm 54 years old and I know. But you have beautiful eyes. Moving inside from the ballet stage, we follow Susan into the dressing room. Here, she was able to show us the mundanity of the girly show. The girls are shown sitting down, feet up, sometimes playing cards, sometimes alone in thought. As with the show itself, there are very few photos that we can share with you on social media. Here, however, it's because of casual, very non-sexual nudity. Apart from anatomy books, this might be the least sexually portrayed nudity I've ever seen. In one photo, a naked woman standing cleans herself, one foot upon a chair. In front of her, a black man, one of the workers, changes a 45 on a portable turntable. They're in a cargo trailer, which doubled as a dressing room, with the rolling door closed. Because of the low lighting, Susan's photos often rely upon stillness and the steadiness of her hand. But in one, a girl enters the backstage wearing only heels and a G-string, while another, fully nude but her shoes, runs through a curtain onto the stage. Everything from the floor to the walls to the cabinet on the left of the frame is made of cheap plywood. The girls themselves are blurred. In the brighter lit dressing room, two photos appear opposite of each other. The left, which we could almost show you on social media, depicts a naked woman, asked to the camera, laughing, with a seated woman dressed in a very loose chemise. The photo on the right shows two of the girls, fully naked, looking through the curtain, probably onto the stage. Another backstage photo, which we can and will share with you, absolutely, <laughs> shows one of the girls tipping back a can of Schlitz while wearing a t-shirt that reads, Eat Me. The cargo trailer makes another appearance, serving as a backstage area where two of the girls wait for the tent to fill. One is seated, rubbing her eye, while the other, standing, holds back the curtain. Being allowed backstage gave Susan access to not only the photographs, but the workers themselves. While there doesn't seem to be any photos of male workers in the dressing room, backstage and after hours, they would talk. And with Susan, recorder in hand, they gave their opinions on just what it was that they were doing there. In one recording, Tom gave his opinion only to be overruled by Lena. But it demands for the girls to be something that they really can't be all the time. And that's a sex symbol. And no one can be a sex symbol all the time, not when they're up close. There's no way. You know, it's a... Uh... <laughs> And like, you know, I said how, you know. I don't think that we are supposed to be sex symbols. I don't think that's what we are. 
because we're not. What we are is we're a symbol of something dirty and um, vulgar. In the book, the photos of backstage in the dressing room are eventually interspersed with photos of the actual show. This gives us a feel for how it was for the women working. They'd wait for the tent to fill, then wait some more, perform, and then go back to waiting. I've been going through the book basically since I've got it. And one of the things I really like about it is it's very non-sexual, like in a way where it wouldn't matter like if they were wearing clothes or not they would stand the same they would act the same they're just very comfortable in their own skin some women you could see have stretch marks like they've maybe had a child most of the women have real tits you know it's like so nice to open a book and see women portrayed as just that women. It's not overdone. It's There's no filler. <laughs> there's no fake tits. There's no Photoshop. These are just what women actually look like. And it was so beautiful to see that because it seems so rare to see that normally now. Well, one of the girls gave Susan her take on the night. Really put on an act. It's like acting, you know, you have to be glamorous. You have to be sexy. You have to move your hips. You got to wear a lot of lipstick and just you have to be fake that's the whole thing you know you have to turn these guys on you know and to me when I'm out there as myself I don't want to turn anybody on unless I really you know want to my, as myself not as a stripper of course the show was well it was the show it's the whole reason the men were there which was the whole reason the girls were there it was why Susan photographed them and why we bought the book and Maybe while you're listening to this episode. For the girls, the show begins in the afternoon. They go on for about 20 minutes, usually three at a time. For the most part, it's dancing to a few records played by someone offstage. Susan most often photographed the strippers just peeking out from behind a, a curtain separating the stage from the dressing room. It's clear that in many cases, the men in the audience see the camera and know they're being photographed. None apparently ever objected. Once in a while, to capture the perspective of the audience, Susan would dress up like a man and hide in the crowd. As the night went on and the crowds became fuller and more reactive, the girls would show more, depending upon the town, but especially in Turnbridge, Vermont. Everything was on the table. Barton, Vermont was, as Susan described it, simply hardcore. Lena explained a bit of what this meant. This business isn't professional showgirls. We aren't showgirls. We're prostitutes pretending to be showgirls. During these types of shows, the men could touch the girls, and here is where they could go down on them. As we alluded to before, this was termed the lunch counter. According to a male audience member... That's about the most intimate thing you can do with a woman, uh, this type of show like this, outside of, say, going to a... House of prostitution. I mean, that's going to cost you more money, and uh, this is quicker. It's more convenient, and it's uh, two or three bucks as opposed to fifty. There were no available recordings where the girls talked about this directly, but the book is full of quotes. On a page of text opposite a photo of a late show at Essex Junction, Vermont, Lena explains. Vanya, I actually got sick to my stomach the first time I went down and let somebody eat me out. I came back here and puked and then said, now I got to do it. And I did it. I won't make a habit of it. This is the only spot I'll ever do it in. 
I can degrade myself for a week, but I have too much self-respect to do it longer. I like myself too much. It's only because we got so much competition and I want to bust balls that I'm doing it. It's the only reason. And all the girls on those stages are assholes. As shown in the quotes, there was a competition and a rivalry between some of the girls. One of the recordings shows this as well. It's none of their business how I work. I don't work like that. I don't. I play. It's, I don't know, they don't have any any kind of finesse about themselves, nothing, you know? It's just cheap quality, and that's it. I, I can't be like that. They're going to go as far as you let them go, those guys. It's just as far as you let them go, but they're not going to bother you. Well, they don't bother me. But the rivalry didn't seem so prominent to Susan. In an interview decades later, she remembered. The... The thing that was so strong was this community they built amongst them. There was a competition, but there was also a kind of um, sense of connectedness at the same time. The final portion of the book is devoted to portraits Susan made of the girls, and for the girls. Opposite each of the portraits is the transcription of what the girls told Susan when the portraits were made. This gives each woman space enough to describe herself, her situation, how she joined the carnival, and and often what her parents thought. Susan was able to gain the respect and trust of the men and women who worked on the girls' shows by living among them. She was there 24 hours a day when the carnival was in town and would travel with them when they left. She set up a tent on the outside edge of the fairgrounds when she was traveling with Dick Rogers and would stay at the same motels the girls stayed at when she was traveling alone. She also gained their respect by getting up on stage, just once. But once was enough for the girls. Susan stripped down, threw on a trench coat, went on stage, and flashed the audience. This not only gained the girls' respect, but gave herself a small idea of what life on stage was like for the girls. This allowed Susan to take her cameras anywhere she wanted. And what of the cameras? Well, since we're a film photography podcast, we should probably touch on that. But since we're all through a lens, we'll let Susan herself tell you. So the only time I worked with a Hasselblad was when I made these portraits, and the portraits were really for them. They wanted pictures to give to their boyfriends, to their fathers. So I made the photographs for them and then in this format, but most of the work of Carnival Strippers is with a 35 millimeter Leica. A Leica is a very special camera because it's quiet. And so if it's quiet, there's no shutter, I could hand hold it very steadily in the back of the tent where there's very little light. And so you see a difference between the two and a quarter the prints, these are all prints that I made in the time of the 70s, and of course the 35, which is much more trying to get the dynamic of a landscape. So many focal points. Lawrence, the manager, the ticket seller, the gatekeeper, this is the place where it would be for men and men only. So I, as a young woman, was left out, which of course motivated me all the more to get in. At the end of the week, Susan would return to her apartment in Boston to develop and print the images. The next week, she'd catch up with the carnival and show the girls the photos. The girls generally loved what Susan shot, which is how and why they got her to take the portraits. This exchange went on through three seasons. At the end of 1975 season, Susan felt she had enough to move forward with the project of compiling them into 
a single book. While shooting the project, she showed her work twice, the second being a solo show where she was able to exhibit the audio recordings as well. The first edition of the book was published in 1976. The sections containing the photos have no captions and no text at all. That is reserved for the final section, which is pretty much all text. The second edition was released in 2003. For this, she resequenced the book, adding 16 photos and removing 13. She also included a CD-ROM containing some of the audio, including much from Lena. Professionals, when you get out there, nothing else matters. You don't think. You don't think about your, your problems. You don't think about anything but what you look like right then and what you're doing. And I, I prefer not to think at all. I prefer when I get out there, I just do it. I, I don't think. I don't plan. I don't do anything. I can't. Because once I start doing that, then I get messed up. So all I do is do what I know I have to do and don't, don't think about it. For the third edition, the one we're looking at now, she once again resequenced the photos, now allowing the images themselves to bring you from the midway to the ballet call to the dressing room and then the stage. She also added an entire additional volume entitled Making Of. For this 150-page second volume hardback, Susan dug back into her archives, which hadn't been touched in decades. In her introduction, Susan described it. Making of is a partial recovery, both of what was eliminated and what was nearly forgotten. The first section shares a visual selection of some early color images and work prints, initially considered for inclusion in the original book, but not chosen or seen again until this publication. These photographs were buried, along with many memories of the exchanges and relationships that helped me find and shape my future path in photography to become a practice of presence. I learned to merge listening and looking with the hope of expanding perspectives of what are often invisible worlds. Throughout the first section of Making Of, Susan shares with us her notes jotted down in a spiral notebook, as well as some of her transcribed interviews. Here we also see many color photos that she took in the first year of the project. Ultimately, color didn't work for her, but we are grateful to see them now. Like the book, the color photos lead us from daylight of the afternoon carnival to the nighttime of the stage. It's clear why color wasn't working. Generally speaking, especially in the 70s, black and white film was much faster than color. The motion blurs are much more prominent in her color shots. She also shares her contact sheets, complete with notes for which photos to use. Each of the sheets generally focuses upon one of the girls. The first is Shorty, including a few color versions of the black and white shots we see in the book. We then meet Lena in the Hasselblad contact sheet for her portrait over the years. The same goes for Tammy, Debbie, and Renee, and Lulu, who even sent Susan a Christmas card. As the book continues, we're treated to work prints with notes for printing, like too bright, toned down, and blacks could be blacker, don't worry about losing detail in here. We see the fruits of her work in a number of prints, many in color. Finally, we get a look at her glossary of girl show terms. 40 neatly handwritten definitions across eight sheets of lined paper. Here is everything from Bally to X, including two definitions for blow off, and a short history of the word cooch. It was an unexpected delight. Stallion, step out. Candy, step out. Stormy, the body is here. Now look, fellas, they got more movement, 
more wiggles in their body than a single sewing machine and daddy yo that's a million wiggles a minute carnival strippers by susan mazelis is one of the least judgmental books we've come across it tells us and shows us the true story of the girly shows at their peak, right before the bottom fell out. Susan befriended a few of the girls, and they kept in touch for years. The endings were tragic for some, uplifting for others. But here's a documentary look at this world that simply doesn't exist anymore. The book, now a box set, along with Making Of, is already out of print at the publisher. You can find copies for less than 100 if you're quick about it. And we urge you to be very quick about it. The traveling strip shows saw their end in the early 1980s. For instance, in 1981, George Gilmore's Hollywood Palace was shut down shortly after it opened in Topsham, Maine. Two reporters from the local paper attended the show, wrote about it, and public outcry caused the police to shut it down. The police claimed to have no prior knowledge of the show's nudity and backstage sex acts with audience members, which included a number of police officers. As Patty, the manager, told Susan a few years before. But this is how the business is now. It is absolutely incredible. Years ago, up north here, it was a, a little pocket. Nobody knew anything about it. The minute you let big shows in and you start talking, you're big grosses, and everybody's trying to outdo everybody else, we're going to end up all on our ass. And that's exactly where we're ending up. One more time before you to the last show. It's like the mailman comes and then... It's word of the day, and it's zine review time. The, Sorry, I don't know. Go hand in hand. I don't know. I, I for some reason will never not think of Pee Wee's Playhouse when we record. I I mean, look, I'm a big Pee Wee's Playhouse fan, but I don't think I've ever thought of Pee Wee's Playhouse when when we record. He has segments. It's it's just like the segmented part of the podcast that makes me think of like how do we go from segment to segment. Do you think that I've modeled the, the podcast structure off of Pee-wee's Playhouse? I mean, it feels like that. We do mail. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's Pee-wee's Playhouse slash Blue's Clues. You know what I mean? Like it's very, or yeah, or the neighbor guy. <laughs> the neighbor guy, sure. <laughs> yeah, neighbor, neighbor dude. dude. Um, okay, yeah. I, I guess you're correct on that. It's like we're home, but we're like checking our mail and we're like doing our things. We're doing a review. You know, it's like it's the back of the newspaper where like the movie reviews are. This is the zine review. This is, you know, we seem to review a new back page, baby. We seem to review a new issue of Better Off every couple of episodes, I guess. And while yeah, they're all I'm cool with that. Really special. This one this one hits home for us. It's Better Off number seven, Lucky Number Seven by Brandy B, who's been our guest on a couple of different episodes. And you know, she's moved to Seattle, and so we hang out once in a while. It's yeah. pretty rare. So Brandy is, of course, at Film Diary of a Redhead on Instagram. And this zine features all half-frame diptychs. And for those who don't know um, a half what a half-frame camera is. Uh, half a frame is, in this case, half of a 35 millimeter frame. There are an assortment of cameras that shoot this format. That gives you double the photos per roll, turning a 36 exposure roll into a, a wildly unwieldy 72 exposures. It's kind of ridiculous. Amazing. It's, it's, it's a slog. What Brandy does with this is a little different. She pairs photos as she shoots, scanning both together as one photo with two images side by side, separated by a black frame. 
This allows for a bit of creative juxtaposition or contextualization, or I guess recontextualization, that would otherwise be not impossible, but slightly less convenient. She even does a couple of three or four shot panoramas with it, which I could never figure out. Most are side-by-side vertical shots, but a good many of them are also horizontal. Have you ever had a half-frame camera and done this, Vanya? Uh, I have a stereo camera. It's like a Kodak stereo. I That's the only, I guess, half-frame that I would have. Okay. Well, I had a half-frame camera once, and it was an Olympus Pen F, I think. It was the manual SLR, fully manual. Mine had a zoom lens, and it allowed me so much control at composing shots in camera. I took diptychs almost exclusively, and it really changed how I looked at photography. And if there's anything that would get me back into 35 millimeter, it would be this idea. It's the camera that I've always wanted and and I've never oh, had. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I've sold it. I sold it, I think, years before I knew you even. Yes, but uh, the first zine that I uh, purchased from you had some Pen F shots in it. Did there. it really? I think the first um, conspiracy of cartographers, honestly. I mean, maybe. Or is it the second? I don't know. So my attempts at this proved kind of hit or miss, probably more miss than hit. And I basically did nothing with the the hits. I mean, maybe I put a couple of them into a zine, but I, I, I don't have any memory of that. Vanya seems to. Brandy shows off some of her thoughtful ideas, such as two photos of posable mannequin hands and a shot of a phone booth with a flowering plant next to it. I can't stress how much this is trial and error since you really can't see the two images work together to make that single shot. When I pick up a zine, especially one to review, I want to find some connection to it. I want it to inspire me. With Brandy's, I'm I'm so close to buying another Pen F. I probably won't do that, but I could be looking for a prism finder for the Mamiya 645. I mean, it wouldn't be the worst idea ever, though the Vanya is still borrowing it mostly because I'm still borrowing her Hasselblad. So that's kind of a sacrifice. We'll have to see how that how that all shakes out. Yeah, you send me mine and I'll send you yours. That's a big ask. So until we figure this out, you best pick up Brandy's zine. And while you're at it, pick up a few other issues of Better Off. I mean, we, we seem to plug them a lot and there's a reason for that. You can get them at betteroffzine.com. They're all 12 bucks a piece, but... Like, hurry the hell up because they are selling off pretty fast. Author Lenses made possible by our generous and amazing Patreon subscribers. Through their small monthly donations, we are able to afford to keep the podcast running. Patreon helps us cover expenses for hosting, for audio equipment. It helps us buy books. Oh my god, we have some great books coming up, by the way. For new episodes and zines to review, so thank you. To our Patreon subscribers, yes, thank you. Uh, We really couldn't or wouldn't or shouldn't do this podcast without you. When you subscribe to us on Patreon, you do get monthly bonus episodes. You get full-length interviews, not just the edits that we do for the episodes. And some random posts and photos... That's been a little lacking lately, but I'm picking some of that up. Some of the extra nonsense is also happening soon, too. For instance, I just got a book of Imogen Cunningham's letters and some of her writing, and I will be reading some of that, not as a bonus episode, but just as a thing to do. 
We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head on over to patreon.com slash authorlens for more information. Well, Vanya, mm-hmm. this has been another episode. It has been another it, it episode. Really, it really has been. For another year. We No, <laughs> it, it's gonna, we'll be back in two weeks. Kind of a crazy episode. We usually don't work blue, but we decided to work a little blue with the carnival strippers, and we hope that our explicit rating, we hope, hopefully we earned it this time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so what are you up to over the next week? I've had some family come into town from Argentina, He's my cousin, Claudio, and I think I'm going to go take some pictures with him. He's he's actually a filmmaker, so he is, you know, went to school for video, all that. Uh, he's more of a digital, but I did hand him off a film camera. <laughs> so Ooh, What'd you give him? Uh, steak sauce. Canon A1 steak sauce number two. <laughs> okay, yeah, Actually, the one that Liz, I got from Liz. Um, oh. I gave him that with some T-Max 100 in there. Nice. And uh, yeah, the last time I saw him was, I think, 2016, maybe. Ooh. And then before that, it was like 2005. <laughs> it's very rare. I get to see my family. It makes me really excited to see to see them and it's hilarious and exhausting to communicate <laughs> yeah with him because i understand everything he says i can't say anything back he understands everything i'm saying he can't say anything back so we're like <laughs> laughing for the most part but yeah it's it's been really great i've been having a good time that's been a lot of fun still going to be doing some developing from my trip and that's about it how about you? I was going to try to go camping this coming weekend, which would be the weekend before y'all are hearing this. And I and I'm I think I'm not going to. I'm going to stay back a little bit. There is a lot of smoke going on because of the wildfires. And I think I'm just going to chill out. But maybe the weekend after that, I, I found a tree that I want to photograph. It's along a lake and would be a potentially good photo both in the evening and in the morning. And it's right by where I'm camping. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So my plan is to arrive Friday evening, photograph it, and you know camp nearby, and then wake up and photograph it again in the morning. Same tree on opposite sides, uh, opposing times of the day, maybe an hour before sunset and an hour after sunrise. So hopefully by the next episode, I'll have some photos to show. Who knows though? And what's coming up on the next dev party? Well, finally, we are getting around to not FX1. Did we, we threatened to do FX1 for a few months, didn't we? We still haven't done it, though. We, we have not. I, I, we have not no, because that. we have something new we're going to do. Yeah, something better. New is better. And it is 510 Pyro. Woo. If you haven't heard of it, that's okay. We hadn't heard of it either. But a few people have messaged us, I guess, and said, hey, you should do 510 Pyro. And I said, no. But then I read about it and looked at some of the photos and said, said yes. I'm kind of cranky sometimes. That's what he does. He says yeah. no before he says yes every time. We're just used to it by now. Yeah, it's true. So we will be developing, I think, FP4 in it. Isn't that correct? Yes. Okay. I bought some sheets. I need to shoot them. Yes, so I'll did. be doing that this, this weekend. <laughs> what a great idea. <laughs> yes. So, Vanya, is there anything else? We should tell them. 
Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. But you can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian on Instagram and at Silver Waves of Grain on Grainery. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers on Insta and cons of cart on Granary. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag all through lens podcast to be featured. You can find our episodes on Spotify as well as Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you find podcasts. Subscribe and leave a review. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next week at Dev Party. Oh, Vanya. Uh, yes. You wanna go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go! Chupacabra.